as you might suspect as a pastor, I get the why question all the time. Uh, I guess it's my most frequently asked question, why? Why this? Why that? Why did this happen in my life? Why did that happen in my life? Why did this happen in the world? Why did that happen in the world? Why did God allow this to happen in the world? Why did God allow that to happen in the world? I, yeah, there are 10,000 variations on the why question. Frank, frankly, a lot of them feel to me to be like backhanded accusations against God. I don't blame the honest questioner as much as I do the leaders of what the world calls Christendom today with the many pseudo-gospels that exist in the world. The popes and the patriarchs and the bishops and the priests and the Protestant ministers and pastors who propagate and perpetuate counterfeit gospels. There are many false gospels in the world and I hate every one of them. And you know what God says about it in uh, Galatians chapter 1. Any man who preaches a different gospel than this gospel, what does God say? Let them be accursed. This is the Word of God. He says it twice actually there. Galatians chapter 1. And to that I say, Amen. These men who preach and teach a one-dimensional, superficial, maudlin, effeminate Gospel that presents God as a pathetic, needy kind of deity who frantically loves us and desperately wants us to love Him back. Men who preach and teach that God's primary concern is that human beings are happy and healthy and prosperous in a temporal sense. Man who preach and teach a man-centered Gospel that leaves the hearer pretty sure that God and the whole universe is all about me. These kinds of men are preaching a caricature, as you guys know, of the biblical God. A dishonest and distorted cartoon image of Him. To the point... This may be your observation. This has been my observation. To the point where most men who hear the modern Gospel presentation believe that God is is kind of a fool who can be played. That we can patronize God in simply religious performance. The ambiance of this kind of teaching and preaching is that God owes me something. (laughs) He created me. He owes me. This is kind of the undercurrent and ambiance of some of this teaching. Because of the pseudo-gospels emanating from pseudo-churches, many in the Christian culture have this false view of God. That God is love to the exclusion of His wrath and His holiness, and His righteousness. That God will show mercy to the exclusion of His anger and indignation. As I said earlier, that God can be duped with religion and religious activity and religious performance. 
I can repent and believe anytime I want. He's just waiting. I can pray that magic prayer anytime. It's a magic prayer. I'll pray it anytime I get ready. And God's obligated to save me. These are some of the undercurrents of what I hear in the world at large. The Holy Spirit flawlessly indicts this kind of thinking in Romans 3.18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is an epidemic in what is called Christendom. Today, pseudo-churches, pseudo-ministers, and pseudo-gospels perpetuate this kind of no fear of God before their eyes. But we know, don't we? We read our Bibles, right? In this church, we read our Bibles, we study our Bibles, we preach the Bible here. We don't want anyone to be deceived. That's what we do here. That's what we do. And if we read our Bibles, we know Jehovah is no pathetic, needy, frantic deity hoping someone will love Him. We know that El Shaddai is not a one-dimensional, sentimental, effeminate God. And we know that I Am is an awesome and fearsome, consuming, fire God. Yeah, I work it in about every tenth sermon. Jesus Christ is the God of Psalm 99, 1-3. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. This is the God, the biblical God, the God of the Bible. Beloved, I'm, I'm a preacher of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and I stand right here in this place and I tell you on the authority of the Word of God that it is a terrifying thing to fall into His hands apart from Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 31. I thought I would ask, have you ever been truly terrified? I doubt that most of us have ever truly, really truly been terrified. Defined as experiencing an intense and overpowering fear. Listen to what God says through His prophet Isaiah about the final judgment. And men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord. And before the splendor of His majesty when He arises to make the earth Tremble. Yes, if you missed last week's sermon, go download it. God is love. And we talked about it last week in some detail. But God's love does not moderate God's holy anger, indignation, fury, and wrath that are mentioned 400 plus times in Scripture. God is infinitely complex. And one of His attributes does not mitigate His other attributes. And as I've said to you many times, 
All of God does all that God does. There is no conflict in the Godhead between His unfathomable love and His awful wrath. God doesn't just mention His wrath, He describes it. If you've read your Bible. These are some phrases. I did a brief survey. These are some phrases that I found in Scripture this week. God mentions His burning anger, His great indignation, His blazing wrath, His fierce anger, His great wrath, His wrathful hostility, the flood of His anger. He talks about being filled and full of wrath. He talks about the rod of wrath. He talks about the fire of His wrath. The pouring out uh, His burning indignation. The inflicting of His wrath. Accomplishing His anger against His enemies. God is unapologetically clear. He is not hesitant to make it known that He is a God of infinite and eternal and omnipotent wrath. I know that many preachers are hesitant to preach it anymore, but God is not hesitant to let you know, to let the whole world know that He will judge His enemies. He will judge His enemies. Jeremiah 10.10 But the Lord is the true God. He's the living God, the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Nahum 1.6 Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the burning of His anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Ezekiel 8.18 God says, Therefore I indeed shall deal in My wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor shall I spare. And though they cry in My ears with a loud voice, yet I shall not hear them. Isaiah 13, just a few excerpts. God says, I'm coming with My instruments of indignation to execute My anger. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. And they will be terrified. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning with anger. Nahum 1-2, God says, I am a jealous, avenging, and wrathful God. Psalm 5.5, God says, I hate all who do iniquity. And of course, you guys know the famous text, Revelation 19.15, which speaks of how Jesus will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. In that famous sermon by the 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards, that famous sermon, I invite you to go download it from the internet. Uh, Yeah, you won't think the universe revolves around you if you go read this sermon. (laughs) Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he makes the point that God's wrath, it's terrible! It's terrible, he says! And then he says it's deserved! This is what has been lost in much of the modern church in the modern Gospel presentation. It is deserved, beloved! And I'll tell you in a minute why we're going down this path. God willing, this will magnify your view of how much He loved you. 
to redeem you. God willing, it will magnify our view. Edward says, after millions and millions of ages of wrath, it has only just begun. I know that many in the modern church, what is called Christendom today, they, they dispense with the doctrine of eternal damnation. They've dispensed with it. It makes people uncomfortable, so we don't talk about it. We don't teach it. We don't believe in it really anymore. Well, obviously Jesus believed it. There's more about hell from the lips of Jesus than from any other source in Scripture. This is how Jesus talks about everlasting wrath. He calls it eternal punishment. He calls it eternal fire. He calls it unquenchable fire. He says the sinner will be salted with fire. He calls it outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Beloved, if we've read and studied and understood and believed our Bibles, we will not be preoccupied with why. That will not be the question in our mind. In the forefront of our mind, that will not be our first question. Probably won't be our second, third, or fourth question. It won't be why. It won't be why. It's been my experience that why is the question of someone who sees themselves as a victim. Last week we talked about it. You are not a victim. I am not a victim. What does the Word of God say about us? We are not victims. We are rebels. We are enemies. We did that. We declared our independence from God. We despised Him. We despised His Word. We made ourselves the enemy of God. We're not victims. We're not victims. We are enemies. I love how John Piper talks about this. I love this illustration. He says, man, if you offend a toad, no big deal. What's a toad going to do, right? No big deal. You offend a man, it might be a big deal. There might be serious consequences you offend a man. You offend God, it's a huge deal. It's an eternal deal. It's an infinite deal. There are eternal consequences. And beloved, you and I have offended God with our rebellion and our sin. If nothing else, our indifference to the God we should lay on our face and worship. Indifference is a sin. Indifference is a sin to this great Creator God. Why is never the primary question of someone who's understood their Bible and understood their most basic and urgent need? Beloved, your problem is, my problem is, God is holy and I am not. God is holy and I am not. And I have no hope of ever making myself holy. I hate the counterfeit man-centered Gospels that inevitably lead to the self-consumed, never-ending questions of why this has happened and why that has happened. Why did God allow that? Why would God allow this? I hate the false man uh, obsessed Gospels that inevitably lead many to call God to account for all of the unanswered whys in their life. 
Don't you see it and hear it many times? Demanding that God give an account of Himself. Why God? Why God? Why God? Why God? Beloved, you get a glimpse of the biblical God, you're not asking why. You remember what Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6? He wasn't asking any why questions. He said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He says, I am undone before this holy God. And he was a prophet! You think you're going to fare any better? I don't think so. Not apart from the what question and the who question. <laughs> I started with the why question for a reason. The true believer knows that why is the wrong question. What is the most pressing question? It's the question of the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Remember? What was his question? Someone tell me. What must I do to be saved? That should be your question, beloved. That should be your question. And the next question is, who can save me? Who can make me holy? I know I'm not holy. Go home and look in the mirror. You're not holy. You're not even close to being holy, beloved. Apart from the work of God, in our lives. Here's a biblical truth for you. Most of you know it that's been here for a while. God just simply doesn't answer many why questions. He just doesn't do it. He simply doesn't do it. He's not going to give an account to you or anyone else. He doesn't even give an account to those who He has saved. God does not give an account of Himself to any man. But what has God done? He doesn't really answer all the why questions. He's answered the what and the who. And that's why we're here. He's answered the what. What is the what? What must I do to be saved? Believe! Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the who. Believe. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Because we believe we were God's enemy. We made ourselves His enemy. It's inexplicable. It's insane, I know. But that's what the Bible says. We were in paradise. And it wasn't good enough. And Satan planted in our mind that God was holding out on us and that there was more good stuff to be had and all we had to do was, you know, ignore God and, 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 and disobey the Word of God. We did it to ourselves, beloved. We did it to ourselves. Peter said it so beautifully there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You hear me say it many times. It's an international church, and I just feel like I have to say this a lot. There's, you know, there's not a hundred ways to God. There's not ten ways to God. There's not five ways to God. There's not two ways to God. There's one way to God. His name is Jesus Christ. Basta. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He doesn't answer why, but He's given us this breathtaking answer, what and who. 
God has come for His people in the most astonishing and remarkable way. You know, my, I guess one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and someone tell me the Word was God. And verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Praise the Lord! This is why I always give you guys ample time to give praise in the beginning of the service. You know, we'll never stop praising Him for all eternity for how He has loved us and saved us. Yeah, I am as in the womb. I am as in the manger. I am as on the cross. I am as in the tomb. I am has come out to save His people from their sins. We talked about it last week. He, Jesus is on a donkey, man. He, he's coming into Jerusalem. He's answering that ancient prayer of Psalm 118. Hosanna, what does it mean? Someone tell me, we talked about it last week. What does Hosanna mean? Save us, please. Save us, please. Here He comes on a donkey. God in a body on a donkey. I mean, <laughs> it's... I, I say this a lot. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't believe any of this if, if I weren't hearing it from God. I wouldn't believe that God was in a body, God was on a donkey, God was going to die for me. I would never believe any of this if it weren't here. If it weren't in the Word of God. But praise the Lord, it's in the Word of God. It's in... The Word of God, we talked about it briefly last week. The arrest of Jesus is no true arrest. He holds all the power. When He simply said His name, they all fell down. Three to six hundred men. He could have. He didn't need to. He had ample power just within Himself. But He could have called twelve legions of angels. This is no true arrest. This is God giving Himself away to His people. That's what this is. God is giving Himself away to His people. And I want to spend just a few minutes recounting how our God has answered the what and the who questions. As we know, the religious leaders who instigated the arrest of Jesus in the garden, they handed Him over to Pilate. And you may remember Pilate tried to play the middle. He could find as the Bible tells us, John 18.38, he could find no guilt in this man. And so to satisfy the bloodlust of the religious leaders, Pilate thought he would have Jesus scourged. Most of you have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. A Roman scourging was a brutal and hideous torture. The whip was made of leather with strands and it had in the, the strands of leather it had metal balls and pieces of sharp bone and pieces of sharp metal. And God was given 39 lashes. His back, His buttocks and the back of His legs would be completely laid open and shredded. Historians tell us that many times ribs, the spine, Veins, muscles, and even some internal organs were often exposed from a scourging. Men died from scourging. But we know what the prophet said. 
Isaiah 53.5, the chastening for I, our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. John 19, verses 2 and 3 tells us that after they scourged God, they, they put a crown of thorns on His head and put a purple robe on, on Him and they mocked God and they hit God in the face Matthew 27.30 tells us that they spat upon God and they beat God on the head with a reed. And in John 19.5-6, Pilate says, Behold the man! And the chief priests and crowd, crowd cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And in John 19.15, Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, We have no king but Caesar! Israel has utterly rejected their God, their Messiah, their Christ. And one of the things that astonishes me, so much astonishes me about this account, but John 19, 17 tells us that Jesus carried His own cross to His place of execution. He would have been surrounded by four Roman soldiers. He marched through the city. The fifth soldier would be out front carrying the placard, which which would tell Jesus' crime. Do you remember Jesus' crime? Anybody remember? He said He was King of the Jews. This is no crime at all. This is a fact. Because crucifixion was so horrifying and ghastly, many men had to be dragged to their execution, but not our shepherd. Isaiah 53.7, He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb that is led to slaughter. John 19.17-18 tells us, they took Jesus to Golgotha and they crucified Him. First, they stripped God naked. Then the Romans laid God down on a crossbeam. They took a seven-inch spike and they drove it through His wrist, crushing His median nerve. Then they hoisted God vertically and drove the spikes through His feet. And as the vertical beam was hoisted and dropped into a hole with a thud, both of God's shoulders would have been dislocated. Most of you know that crucifixion is just an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The position that the victim is in on the cross puts the chest in an inhaled position and then at some point the victim can no longer push up and exhale and they simply suffocate. Crucifixion was the slow destruction and annihilation of a man. But you remember what the prophet said, Isaiah 53.10, but God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief to render Him a guilt offering. We know what the New Testament teaches, that Jesus is the true believer's guilt offering. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He the Father made Him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So beloved, look at the brutal, ghastly, Savage, bloody cross. It is a picture of your sin before God. 
I think we think far too casually and lightly about our sin. If you look at the cross for very long, you cannot. It's a picture of the ugliness of our sin. It's a picture of God the Son receiving wrath that is rightfully ours. It's rightfully ours. Isaiah 53.6 But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. And I just want to stop and ask you seriously, you're concerned about all the why questions? Are you kidding me? You're spending all your days asking God why? Here's a good why question. Why would you die for me, God? You got a why question? Let me lovingly suggest, let this be your why question. To the exclusion of all other why questions. Why would God die for me, His enemy? Why would Jesus come for me, His enemy? Why would God do it? You, got, you need to ask a why question? There's your good why question. You'll spend the rest of eternity praising God. Never probably fully understanding all of the why. Never fully apprehending the depth to which He has loved you. And the price He paid on that cross for you. Beloved, You know that why question, it kind of blows away all the other why questions, doesn't it? In, in my mind, <laughs> I don't need to know why the cancer came. I really don't need to know. I know God's in it, and God's going to be with me through it. And if I live, you know, that's great. If I die, that's great. To live is Christ, to die is gain. If the financial disaster wipes me out, it wipes me out. My God's still God. Jesus is still Savior. I don't need to know why. I'm still dealing with why would my God die for Jim? I know my sin. Why would God die for me? I know my sin. You know your sin. Why would God die for someone like you? Why would He do it? There's really no explanation for it except that He's decided to love you. You know, as we talked about last week, God said, I love the... When He's speaking to the Jews, He said, I love you because I love you. It's not because you're big, a big people or a great people or a, a renowned people. It's not about that. He said, I just decided to love you. Jesus Christ was on the cross from the third hour to the ninth hour. That's 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Total of six hours. Matthew 27.45 tells us that darkness fell on the land from the sixth to the ninth hour. Symbolic of God's curse which fell on Jesus when our sins were laid upon him, Matthew 27:46 reads about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" John 19:30 tells us that God shouts, "It is finished." Matthew 27:50 tells us he yielded up his spirit. You guys know what happened? The veil was rent, the earth shook, the rocks split, and many saints came out of the tombs. You remember the Roman soldier, the Roman soldier's confession as he stood at the foot of the cross? You remember? Anyone remember? Surely, this is the Son of God. Let me pause again and make sure you understand what all this is about. It's about your sin before God. 
It's about your guilt before God. It's about the wrath that your sin and your guilt deserves. And listen, when I do that, I'm doing this. That's what all this is about. You know, I used the word last week, unexpected. That God had loved us in this unexpected way. Isn't this unexpected? That God would love us like this? Have you ever heard of anything that's more unexpected than God becoming a man and dying on a cross? Have you ever heard of anything that fantastic, that amazing, that breathtaking because He loved His people? <laughs> Mama Mia, how can Christianity be small to anybody? If it's small to us, we don't understand it. It's just religion to us if it's small to us. It's just religion. All this is about your wages. You've earned your wages. Your wages are death, eternal death. In hell, you deserve it. I deserve it. But my awesome God saved me. You remember what Jesus said? In John 10.18, I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it back up. That's why we're here this evening not to worship a dead martyr, but to worship our great God. Parenthetically, I'm not going to waste any good pulpit time answering the, the skeptics who try to explain away the resurrection. If you have a problem or question about that, I highly recommend this book by Lee Strobel, uh, A Case for Christ. He answers the skeptics. I'm not going to waste any time on that. The Bible affirms that Jesus appeared no fewer than 11 times over a period of 40 days to more than 500 people. And I'm going to spend just the last few minutes highlighting one of those appearances. Real Christians, you know, don't believe He's risen merely because of the hard evidence. Way to go, Lee Strobel. I'm proud of you, Lee Strobel. It's great that you piled up all this historical evidence, Lee Strobel. I love it, but I don't need it. I've met Him. I've met Him! It's why all true believers believe. <laughs> so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, real quick, I'm going to go to John 20 and we're going to look at that, that account there where Mary Magdalene uh, goes to the tomb. You guys know the account. She's weeping. She stoops over the tomb. She beheld the angels sitting there. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said, Because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid Him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Him. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing Him to be a gardener, she said to Him, Sir, if you have carried Him away, tell me where you have laid Him and I will take Him away. This is one of the amazing things about the resurrection story. Jesus had told His people, it's going to happen. I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back on the third day. It's going to happen. Nobody believed Him. Nobody believed Him. Mary has a lot of love, but she doesn't have any faith. So how does Mary know? How does Mary know that it's Jesus? She actually sees Him. She actually talks to Him. She doesn't recognize Him. But what happens next? Someone tell me. You probably know the text. What happens next? He says, Mary! And nobody could say her name like Him! Amen? 
She knew it was him. She knew it was him. You know what Jesus says? John 10, I call my sheep by name and they know me. I know my own and my own know me and they follow me. So, here we are 2,000 years later worshiping Jesus Christ, our Creator and our Redeemer before whom every moral creature in the universe will bow. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And though most of the world believes we are hopeless simpletons, believing that we worship a dead Jewish carpenter, and much of the world using His name as a curse word or slang, we know who He is. We know what He's done. And we know He's coming back. Revelation 22.12 Quickly. So, Christian, Happy Resurrection Sunday. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Our incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrection, resurrected, returning God, He lives. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ lives. Hallelujah. He lives. Yes, as we sang, shout to the Lord. He will never grow weary <laughs> for all eternity. Shouting to the Lord. God says through His prophet Isaiah 45, chapter 45, 21 to 22, there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen.